Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from New Milford, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Henry Doss. Thanks for having me, Victor. Great to have you here, Henry. Now, we're both kind of former New Yorkers. You lived in Manhattan for a number of years. Now you're relocating, like many New Yorkers, up to Connecticut, many people moving to upstate New York. But what I want to talk about today, more than anything, is the risk environment. There's so much that's changed over the last several years, in particular the last 12 months, that even our own classical definitions of risk have changed dramatically. But before we do, why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? All right. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. Started my first business in 1991. So 30 years, had a succession of different businesses in different spaces, including real estate. For the last probably almost 10 years, I've been a business coach. So I coach entrepreneurs, usually million dollar plus businesses. Wrote a book called FQ Financial Intelligence, where you know I talk about everything I think you need to know about money from pretty much the day you're born until the day you die. And that's basically it. I've uh, been involved in in different real estate ventures over the years, on and off. I think um, we're currently on with real estate stuff, having just bought a new house in a rather overheated environment. So yeah, that's basically it. I love that. A lot of people tend to typecast themselves as I'm a, a restaurant person or I'm a real estate guy or what have you. And from my perspective, it's kind of all the same. The fundamental rules of business don't change really independent of what the industry is. No, they don't. No. 90% of business is the same. ARAP, cash flow, margins, whether you're selling 747s or paperclips. I mean, pretty much most of it is the same. Exactly. So one of the things that's, you know, when we have investor discussions, the, the question of risk always comes up. I know you teach on risk, so do I. And so I wanted to have a little bit of a conversation about how we even wrap our heads around risk in today's environment when so many things that would have never even registered on the radar a year ago, I mean, the notion that the airline industry would shrink by 90%, I mean, just unthinkable. The hotel industry shrinking by 60%, I mean, again, unthinkable. How do we even wrap our minds around this? These black swan events, I mean, it's, and there's a famous book with that title. These are very hard to predict. I mean, if we set the Wayback Machine a couple of years back, yeah, there were certain people who were out there talking about the potential for a pandemic is on the horizon there. But I don't think anybody was about to take a bunker mentality to prepare for that. So they're exceptional risks. What I'm really talking about is your garden variety risk, whether it be in the stock market, real estate, commodities, whatever it is that you happen to be investing in, there's a way that you can graph it out, which is the risk versus reward. And before you can even assess that, you really have to talk about your own individual psychology. Like what is your tolerance? I would say anecdotally speaking with the people that I deal with and I teach a course in money, I'd say probably eight out of 10 people would live in scarcity. They're much more interested in preserving their capital than they are in getting a high rate of growth. Yet, they will do incredibly stupid things with their money that are ultra high risk. And sometimes it's very difficult to make sense of it. Like what's driving this behavior? So that's fascinating. I've seen some of the same things. Maybe why don't you give a little bit of an example so that it's clear for the listeners? Because like you said, people can be saying on the one hand, they're all about preservation of capital, they're all about low risk, and then they go take a flyer on something. Well, look at the GameStop stuff. I know you, you like to talk about real estate, but you know, unless you've been living under a rock, 
even if you don't trade the stock market, it was all over the news. GameStop, this sleepy little brick and mortar company, you know, 2021 version of Blockbuster, right? And there's, I think there's one Blockbuster store left in Portland, Oregon, after having like 30,000 of them or some gargantuan number. And people, and it went crazy. I mean, it went parabolic from $2 to $500 in the span of a couple of weeks. And now we're reading the stories about all these folks who were the last ones in. Just read a story about a guy who on margin bought a million and a half dollars worth of went long when it was trading up in the hundreds. And now he wants to sue Fidelity where he had his account because uh, they wouldn't let him trade. I write a bi-monthly newsletter and I'm going to write about that. (laughs) about the folly of that. Uh, You were unprepared. You were looking for a quick buck and you got what you got. But I bet you that's the same guy who will drive 10 miles out of his way to buy gas that's three cents cheaper. I'm only taking a guess on that. Yeah, history favors the bold. History favors the prepared. And even the prepared can get their lunch taken away from them. I look at stuff like that and I say, there are so many easier ways to make money than to get involved in that kind of folly. And it's hard to make money. (laughs) Well, I think it also comes down to being clear on what is the definition of investing versus trading versus manufacturing versus speculating. Those are all different. And that's why those different words exist, because they describe a different set of conditions. Well, most of those are time-based, right? I talk about in my book, the four different types of traders, you know, the day trader, buy in the morning, sell in the afternoon or vice versa, never hold a trade overnight you know, classic scalp trader. Then there's swing traders, little longer time horizon. Then there's what I am, which is a position trader, where I build up a position and then I hold it until it's exhausted and then I sell it. And then there's the, you know, the buy and hold, right? Grandma or grandpa who bought Microsoft in 1982 and reinvested the dividends, never sold a single share, right? And then they became gazillionaires. A lot of different ways you have to find what fits you. Real estate has a tendency to have a longer cycle and it tends to be more of a trailing economic indicator as opposed to the stock market, which is a leading indicator and tends to have a high level of liquidity. If you want to get out, you get out. But if you own a property, it takes time, right? Can't just turn on a dime. The stock market's been described absolutely as a leading indicator. The question right now is, is it an indicator at all? Because in fact, had a conversation with a senior executive from Goldman about this time last year. And you know he shared with me that even on their own trading desk, 90% of the volume is computer-generated trades, where their own quantitative analysts are basically trying to outsmart the guys from JP Morgan and all the other hedge funds. It's all a game of software battles, which in my mind is not really about investing. It's about arbitrage. It's about trading, trading to try and squeak out minute margins on high volumes. It's basically scalp trading, right? But on a massive level. I mean, they get to the point where they'll they'll locate their server farms as close as they can to wherever the, the market maker is. A few nanoseconds of fiber makes a difference. There's a Michael Lewis book about that that I read a while ago. It's uh, fascinating stuff. And I worked for the New York Stock Exchange for about 10 years as a computer programmer. So this is in my wheelhouse. My uncle owned a seat on the exchange when Mm -hmm. it was still private. Wow. Yeah. 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 No, I used to talk to the specialist down on the floor. I'm talking back in the eighties. And that was when a specialist had to make a book. Yes. Right. He had a book and he had to match buyers and sellers. There was a natural throttling mechanism. 
the human was part of the mix and humans will slow things down. But now, like you say, it's machines and machines trading on, you know, back and forth. But remember, those algorithms were programmed by human beings and they can get tripped up. I'm 40 plus percent cash now, probably leaving a little bit of money on the table. But my metrics tell me that this market is, is do I want to say staggeringly overbought? It's significantly overbought. So I have to manage my risk. And the simplest way to manage risk in, in my 61 years on this planet is to stick money in my pocket. Nobody ever went broke taking a profit. As Ber- yeah, I think it was Bernard Baruch who said that. And I say that all the time to people. Don't cry about it. Maybe the market runs away from you, but you made money. Enjoy it. De-risk where you can. No, not long-term. Absolutely. Certainly cash as a means of exchange. Absolutely. I don't know that I necessarily want to be sitting on a ton of cash long-term. It's not a great store of value, especially in a high inflation environment. It seems like indications are that we're entering an increasing inflation environment for sure with the amount of printing that's been going on. Well, we are. We're planning a renovation on this house and we've done this twice before, but I look at the price of lumber and I'm like, since when is a two by four, five bucks? It's a $2 item, right? You blink, cost of lumber skyrocketed. Cost of all building materials has skyrocketed. So we may have to rethink some of the things that we do since we're, we're planning this as a spring or summer project, but the cost of goods might be significantly higher than we're budgeting. We're overwhelmingly in new construction. And certainly the the cost of lumber is a topic of daily discussion, mm-hmm. where compared with this time last year, prices have more than tripled. We're at $996 per thousand board foot Wow! Uh, for lumber, where, you know, back in March, at, at the low point in March, we we're $264 per thousand board foot. Mm-hmm. And so it certainly factors in. Now, your framing costs typically is somewhere between 14 and 17% of your hard construction costs. So you know, it's not going to triple the cost of construction by any means, but it could easily add ten yeah. percent. No, but it may mean doing some value engineering and some other and other parts of it. So that's something that we have to look at. Now, the nice thing is that nobody's holding a gun to our head saying that we have to do a project. <laughs> we can wait it out. House is perfectly livable as it is. But from past experience, I like to get it done when we first move in at the get go. Because once you get comfortable in a place, you're not going to want to do it. Exactly. We we found that there's a break point where the cost of a wood two by four, as soon as it reaches the cost of a steel stud, might as well use the steel stud. It doesn't warp. Sure. Uh, So that kind of sets a ceiling on that material cost. So we've started to do even uh, material substitution in a few projects. That's interesting. Wow. So you talked a little bit about risk and reward. Some people say high risk, high reward, and I don't necessarily subscribe to that. You can still have high risk and just have high risk. You can have high risk and low reward. You know, they're not linked at all, even though they're linked in a lot of people's minds. How do you get help people get clear on that? Well, it's hard to find low, you know, high reward, low risk, right? Sometimes things are masquerading as that. But once you start digging into it, the first step is you have to say, what's my risk tolerance, right? Am I a hundred year old great grandma who's living on a fixed income or am I, you know, a riverboat gambler who figures even if I lose it all, I can make it back. Those are sort of the two goalposts. And most of us live somewhere in the middle, but it tends to ebb and flow based on economic circumstances. So 
When the pandemic first hit, which was about a year ago, it was gloom and doom and everybody was circling their wagons and the economy just, like you said, airlines went down 90% and all of these things. Restaurants closed. Then there was a little bit of a return to a quasi-normalcy over the summer as the weather heated up and people kind of switched from risk off to risk on or maybe quasi risk on. And then the fall came around. So it tends to ride in waves. You were mentioning the market. The market is baking in the end of COVID. They're baking it in now. So counterintuitively, when COVID actually ends, we may see a significant market decline. We just might because, you know, all the money already went into the market. I don't have the answer. I don't have a crystal ball on that. So you have to factor in your personal proclivities in terms of risk versus just the general overall risk within the market. I'll tell you. So the example was we bought this new house and we had planned to move at this time because we're empty nesters now and we got delayed a little bit by COVID, but we decided we're going to stick with our plan and we're going to buy a house in this staggeringly overheated market, which I was shocked at. We had to pay 20% over the asking price. And there were 10 other people who had already bid. And this all happened within 24 hours of a house. And I was just, and I've been, you know, doing, I've been in the real estate for you know 40 years. And I'm scratching my head at this. And the only reason that we actually got the deal was because we offered all cash. Cash is king. Uh, I found out afterwards that there were actually higher offers than ours. And I thought our offer was ridiculous. And yet I cast that against the risk environment in terms of COVID and the economic metrics that are going on. And I'm saying to me, there seems like there's a disconnect between that. There's all this cash flowing, there's all this demand. So what are the contributing factors to causing people to actually create too much risk within the real estate market right now? I haven't been able to deduce it other than, you know, work from home and all of these other things. Although I, I remind people that you're not working from home, you are living in your office and you need to remember that there's a lot to be said for having an office space. You'll discover that, or if you haven't discovered it already, that, you know, living in close quarters with everybody around, especially with young children, no picnic. I've been about 60-40 having an office in Manhattan versus working from home. There are pros and cons to both. But eventually things will normalize and people will go back to office buildings. At least I, I hope so. You know, I had a chat with my old landlord in New York and they own about 600 units. He said, I can make it to the end of 2021. But if it goes much further than that, the moratorium on rents, I'm going to have to start selling stuff. And you're going to see a lot of people out there selling stuff at significant haircuts. Because as interesting as it is, as the government may have done a lot of stuff for regular folk, they haven't done anything for the landlords. Correct me if I'm wrong. You you may be more, more plugged into it. No, you're right. I mean, there are forbearance agreements. And if you've got agency financing, Fannie or Freddie or HUD financing, those forbearance agreements are available to you. And I think I think I just heard that they're going to be extending those forbearance agreements another six months. Originally, was it 12 months? I would think they'd have to. Right, right. But you know, a lot of commercial real estate isn't funded using conventional debt or even Fannie or Freddie-backed debt. A lot of it's in the bond market. Those bonds don't have those provisions built within them. There is no loan modification that's possible with a bond per se. So then the bondholders that are holding the debt on marquee properties, trophy properties in New York, 
the hotels, I mean, 38% of the hotels in New York are in default now on their bonds. What's going to happen to them? It's not clear. You know, if you're the bondholder, you're going to say, well, I'll try and negotiate new terms, or do I want to put my mitts on that property and own it myself? Tough call. Now we're back into the risk situation, which is, do you really want to do that? Is that your business? You know, this bond was supposed to be a quote, I'm making air quotes while I say this, a passive investment, right? Maybe you just want to take your lumps, take a haircut, get out. I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. But it does portend some economic upheaval in the not too distant future. You can only kick the can down the road so long, right? So we are playing with a little bit of fire in the idea that we'll have a handle on COVID come the fall. I don't know if I want to bet on that, even though I got my first vaccine shot last week. It's a slow roll and it's going to take time. And the other side of it is people's habits, right? I've kind of forgotten what it was like uh, before COVID. I don't know about you. I've seen my, in certain arenas, my expenses have collapsed in terms of when I think about all the times we used to go out to eat, right? Now, when we go out to eat on the rare occasion, we, we overorder and we overtip because we want to keep these places in business. But us doing it every, you know, once a month or once every two months is not going to keep these people in business. Yeah, absolutely. We've been doing much of the same thing. And it's absolutely true that the, the landscape for many of these businesses is going to change dramatically post-COVID. One of the folks that's part of one of my masterminds is connected with the healthcare system, uh, very closely connected. And the, the White House sent a letter to all of the governors of the, of the states saying, don't expect COVID to be over with until Q1 of 22. Okay, I believe that. I believe that as well. Yeah. So they, they have to be thinking, okay, how do we keep this ship afloat for another year? Another year, right. 1918, which happens to also be the year my father was born, there were four waves. The second wave was the deadliest, and it took two years. And even though medicine has made unbelievable leaps and bounds in the past hundred years, my expectation when this started was it's going to take another two years. And that was that without anticipating a vaccine in, in quote, warp speed, which it truly was. I mean, it was really a Nobel Prize winning endeavor that they were able to create vaccines that quickly. Now the, the challenge is getting it into people's arms. And I know people who don't want to take it. So are you banking on the fact that the rest of us are inoculated and you're going to get herd immunity? It's like, come on, get with the program. Absolutely. And a lot of that fear is based on ignorance. You know, this current round of vaccines are not not a live vaccine like polio. It's not even a weakened vaccine. It's quite simply the spike protein that fools the immune system into recognizing this pathogen as something that it knows how to fight. And the spike protein by itself is harmless. There's a small percentage of folks, and I'm not a doctor, but a small percentage of folks that have had allergic reactions to the propylene glycol, which is the fluid that the vaccine is suspended in. But every single vaccine, I mean, heck, even e-cigarettes, are using propylene glycol as the fluid. So this is a, a fluid that's been used billions and billions and billions of times. So it's the safety of that fluid with the body is not being questioned at this point. So why someone would avoid taking the vaccine is, in my mind right now, is I, I don't understand. You know, it reminds me of when you had to turn off your iPod when you got on an airplane. You know, I'm an electrical engineer, and I said, and I remember thinking to myself, if this thing is affecting your navigation system, something is like seriously amiss. But it's the optics of it, 
right? Because not everybody who's getting on a plane has a degree in electrical engineering. They don't know. They just look at it and say, it's electric. The plane has electricity. There's a risk. So everything is done for the lowest common denominator. Unfortunately, that's kind of how governments work. Well, Henry, folks want to connect if they want to learn more. What's the best way? You can go to Henry Doss, my vanity page, D-A-A-S, henrydoss.com. And that has links to my mastermind groups. You mentioned masterminds, my FQ course, my coaching. It even has my screenplays that I write and my baseball cards, which have also gone parabolic, which is another kind of weird anomaly of, well, 30 million people lost their jobs and yet baseball card prices are at an all-time high. Another paradox I'm having a tough time wrapping my head around. But yeah, that's the easiest place. Fantastic. Well, Henry, thank you for the perspectives. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Henry at henrydas.com, spelled H-E-N-R-Y-D-A-A-S.com. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. Talk to you again tomorrow.